Hello and welcome to the Radical News Radio Hour with Serene Saadeh. You're listening to WFNU LP St. Paul Frogtown Community Radio 94.1 FM. Thanks to Manny Mestas for that opening music. And just a reminder that you can find the Radical News Radio Hour on Facebook. You can find me on Twitter at C Miriam. That's C M I R I A M. And you can listen to previously aired episodes of this show on Spotify, Google Podcasts, amongst many other podcast sites. You can also reach our show at radicalnewsradiohour at gmail.com with tips, recommendations, and any questions. On today's episode, we'll be talking about the flu shot, as well as, well as listening to coverage and public testimony from the Minnesota House Select Committee on Racial Justice from their meeting on Tuesday of this week, October 13th. Just a reminder, if you've got feedback on a story or a story tip, please email us. Again, that's the Radical News Radio Hour at gmail.com. Today, we'll be uh, listening to a pre-recorded interview with Samantha Hansen, Chief Administrative Officer at North Memorial Health, about North Memorial's new requirement that all of their staff members receive the flu shot. Here's that interview now. Hi, Samantha. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Radical News Radio Hour. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. I'm really pleased to be here with you this morning. We're really glad to have you as well. So, Tell me a little bit about your work. You are with uh, which, uh, with North Memorial? I'm with North Memorial Health. Uh, I am the Chief Administrative Officer for our health system. And this is a health system that has two hospitals, the North Memorial Health Hospital uh, in Robbinsdale and our Maple Grove Hospital in Maple Grove. But we also have uh, 19 clinics across the Twin Cities area and two urgency centers. We also have a statewide and western Wisconsin ground and air ambulance services, which a lot of people don't really recognize. We have 32 bases, including seven bases for helicopters. Oh, wow. So, I mean, I don't think I ever realized how big North Memorial was. I worked in North Minneapolis for years, and I always just thought about it sort of as like the local place, not not as this huge, um, you know, series of institutions. Yeah, by design. Uh, we are a very special health system, and we believe, in fact, our tagline is we treat you like family. Um, our intent is to be a comfortable, safe, and welcoming uh, environment, regardless of how you contact our North Memorial, whether it's through a clinic, through one of our outreach community paramedics, uh, or um, in our hospitals. So uh, that's actually a compliment that uh, makes me smile to hear your uh, to hear your impression of our health system. Wonderful. So today we're talking about the flu vaccine and um, why it's absolutely necessary this year that especially healthcare workers are taking the flu vaccine. Can you tell me a little bit about the influenza vaccination program that is being, um, I guess, introduced or furthered along this year? Yes, thank you. You know, 
Uh, getting the flu vaccine has always been a priority for us as a health system. We believe that for most people, it provides a level of um, protection and allows us as a community to uh, be prepared uh, for flu outbreaks that, you know, manage differently each year. Uh, and as we were moving into the fall and the flu season in 2020, um, as we are facing COVID-19 um, so predominantly uh, in our world, North Memorial felt it was very important to step differently into the flu vaccine program this year. And in fact, have taken the step to make it mandatory for all of our 6,400 healthcare workers um, across our system to have the vaccine, of course. We are compassionate and have a religious and medical exemption process, but very few of our team members are taking us up on that. We understand that in a time when there's not a lot that we can control with COVID-19, not having a vaccine, and infecting our, uh, impacting rather our world, uh, one thing we can do is take advantage of vaccines that are available. So I am so proud to say that in the month of October, uh, we've uh, launched a mandatory flu vaccine. We're having a little fun with it, frankly. We have tents set up and, um, and uh, are making it super easy for our team members to um, be vaccinated. And in our first 10 days, we've already had 3,000 of our team members uh, vaccinated. Um, and we will be, of course, working with our team members through the rest of October to make sure that we get all of them. The key here is for our community, when they are seeking health care, whether it's in a clinic or whether it's in a hospital, um, to feel safe and feel confident that we're doing everything we can, not only to keep them safe from infection spread relative to COVID and that we are um, consistent and dedicated to safer processes, including mask wearing, et cetera, but also to know that we take it so seriously that we have implemented a mandated flu vaccine for this year. Wonderful. So given that everything's been happening with COVID and the need for a vaccine there, I mean, why, why push and really require this participation? I mean, like what happens if, what happens if people don't get the flu vaccine? Yeah, what a, that's a really good question. Um, we are mandating it because we believe that it's one step that we can take to create a safe environment, not just for uh, the people who depend on us for care, but also for each other, for our workforce. And um, we are not anticipating this to be a situation, but we are making it a requirement um, for working in our health system. Um, and as I stated before, uh, we are also offering easy, simple, religious and medical exemption processes for those people who um, so need that. And then they will be... Um, uh, you, you would be able to, if you came to a clinic or hospital, you'd be able to recognize those folks, but we also want to have a compassionate and easy exemption process if they need it. But what we are asking and are requiring through our mandated vaccine program is that everyone participate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you can speak to this, but I'm going to ask it, and if you can't, feel free to say you don't know an answer, but there's been sure. a lot of 
conspiracy theorying around the impact of the flu vaccine on COVID. Is mm. that being part of the conversation? Again, I don't know the science behind this, and a lot of it, I think, is just sort of like whispers from people who maybe are concerned about either one of the other. Yeah, um, I can't really speak to uh, the science or lack thereof and the conspiracy theory. What I can do is talk about the real science around vaccine safety and mm -hmm. the efficacy of the vaccine for flu. And that's mm -hmm. really what we're focusing on because mm -hmm. in a time where we have both COVID and influenza at the same time in our population and in our communities, mm -hmm. boy, that adds just another level of concern for those folks who mm -hmm. have respiratory issues or are immunocompromised. So there is, um, we are not, we're not feeding into a, a theory one way or the other. We are just saying now more than ever is a time when the flu vaccine is very important. And uh, recognizing that we don't have a vaccine for COVID. Um, so let's do everything we can to help reduce what we do have control over. And that's the flu. Makes perfect sense to me. And I only bring that up because it's something I've been hearing from so many people that oh, sure. I think yeah. this year more than ever, the people are scared of the flu shot. And it's like, you know, we don't want to create another pandemic on our hands. Um, can you talk a little bit about where people can find more information about the flu yeah. shot and also where they can, even if they're not healthcare workers, get the flu shot? Oh, yes. There are, this is where our community shines. There are multiple um, places for uh, individuals to get their flu shot. There's uh, information on NorthMemorialHealth.com, um, certainly the health department. There are multiple sites. If you go into your uh, favorite search engine and type in flu shots in the Twin Cities, there will be uh, at many opportunities. And look, this is not a time to be competitive. We don't care where you get your flu shot, just go get it. <laughs> Wonderful. Thanks to Samantha for joining us for that interview. Just a reminder that you're listening to WFNU, LP, St. Paul, Frogtown, Community Radio, 94.1 FM. Up next, we'll be listening to public testimony from the most recent meeting of the House Select Committee on Racial Justice coverage which we've been following since it first launched. Thanks to The Uptake, where I work as Executive Director for the Audio, and their sponsors, the Minnesota Council of Nonprofits and Voices for Racial Justice, as well as Education Minnesota, for their support of our work. First of all, uh, Deborah Watts um, with the Emmett Till Legacy Foundation, also a resident of uh, Plymouth, Minnesota for the last uh, 32 years mother, grandmother, and um, concerned citizen. And also it brings me great privilege to uh, be a part of this. And I do appreciate the opportunity from the select committee. This is very, very important. And to have the honor and the privilege to speak with you today is, um, is such a blessing. Um, I'm standing on the shoulders though of those that have gone before me both in Minnesota and a part of my family. I am the cousin of Emmett Till, who we have uh, experienced great trauma uh, as it relates to his murder in 1955. 
but also in solidarity with those some 4,000 or so uh, individuals who've been lynched in our country. And then close to home, the, um, the families of those that were lynched in Duluth, the McGee, the Clayton uh, uh, families and, and others. And then in addition to that, in solidarity with those families, 400 or so families that have experienced police violence. So we're talking about a long history of violence, racism, uh, that has been at the hands of, of those that have brought hate uh, and violence into our, our midst. And so it gives me great privilege to talk about how we need to move forward. Uh, this is a country, state, that I don't believe that the current situation is something that we can rest on. So this opportunity to speak about the public health issues that we face and the number of families that have experienced trauma as it relates to the lynchings, the murders, and the police violence is very critical. I have been advocating on the behalf of families of victims of racially motivated murders um, at a national level and have proposed some solutions on a national level as well. And they involve having a seat at the table when we're talking about policy. Excuse me, 30 seconds. Oh, okay, thank you. Uh, when we talk about the policies. And then in addition to that, on a state level in Minnesota, uh, we have received language for a bill uh, and an act that's called the Emmett Lewis Hill Victims Recovery Program. And that involves trauma-informed training from a cultural, faith-based, specific um, uh, uh, opportunity to advance healing to those families of those victims. They usually are left out of the solution. And having an opportunity to speak, having an opportunity to provide voice and to bring reality to the trauma and the need for a public health response to this situation is very necessary. I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you and I'd love to have the opportunity in the future to talk more specifically about the bill, the Emmett Lewis Hill Victims Recovery Program and how that will affect and impact the health healing and wellness of those families here in Minnesota. Thank you so much, um, Ms. Deborah Watts. We appreciate having you here. You know, I think we all know the legacy of uh, Emmett Tills. Um, and so, you know, our hearts continue to work to you and the family as you deal with this legacy Thank and you. how to correct some of the wrongs. Um, so our next uh, speaker would be um, Latricia Vito um, will be next and after Patricia. I'm not sure if it's Latricia and Tony Newborn are together, but I have Latricia uh, next. So go ahead, Ms. Vito. Thank you. Uh, good afternoon. My name is Latricia Vitaw, and I'm the Director of Health Policy and Advocacy at North Point Health and Wellness Center in North Minneapolis. I also serve as a Minneapolis Parks Commissioner. 
I'm representing Minnesotans for a Smoke-Free Generation, a coalition of 60 plus organizations preventing youth tobacco addiction. I also co-chair the Menthol Coalition, a group fighting the specific problem of menthol tobacco, especially in the black community. Um, I wanna thank you for creating this committee to address systemic institutionalized racism faced by black Minnesotans, as well as indigenous people and other communities of color. Racism is a public health crisis. One huge step we can take to address this crisis is ending sales of menthol tobacco products. Menthol is a cooling chemical that makes it easier to start smoking, easier to inhale and harder to quit. For decades, Big Tobacco has marketed menthol cigarettes specifically to African-American people, advertising in black publications in neighborhoods, sponsoring concerts. They even used to drive around black neighborhoods handing out free samples of menthol cigarettes. Today, 88% of black smokers smoke menthols. So it is any wonder why African-Americans have the highest death rate and shortest survival rate for the most cancers. Also, black people are 53% more likely to die from heart disease, the top smoking related disease. Now, research shows many black smokers say if menthol were banned, they quit altogether. Yet again and again, menthol gets exempted from flavor policies. For example, since the federal government restricted certain fruit and candy e-cigs, menthol e-cigarette use is soaring. Today, 30% of high school vape vapors use menthol e-cigs and menthol products now account for half of all e-cigarette sales. Of course, black people aren't the only ones hurt by menthol products. They're popular among all demographics, kids, Latinx, LGBTQ, and yes, even white straight people. We can't let the tobacco industry continue addicting and harming the next generation. Our coalition has worked to pass local polities to build momentum for a statewide law. A few weeks ago, Fridley became the 17th Minnesota community to, to restrict flavor sales. 30 seconds. Five Minnesota cities have completely prohibited the sale of flavored tobacco product. Now the biggest difference would be a strong federal ban on menthol, but our health can't wait for the FDA. Earlier this year, a bill to take flavored tobacco products off the market cleared the committee process in the Minnesota House. In 2021, let's expand our bipartisan coalition to protect the health of all Minnesotans from all flavored tobacco products, especially menthol. Thank you. Thank you so much for your testimony, Latricia Vito. Appreciate it. And I'm sorry, um, I, I was just reading through the chats that I was to have Reverend um, Miller to go next. So why don't we have Reverend uh, Miller to go next and then Tony Newborn, uh, you will follow Reverend Miller. Thank you. Hello everyone, um, I, my name is Melvin, Reverend Melvin Miller. I'm senior pastor at Progressive Baptist Church and certainly want to uh, thank um, the House Select Committee for this opportunity to share um, uh, today. Uh, I want to just, uh, um, it takes a minute for a preacher to get going, so I'm, but I'm going to jump right into it. We have some significant crises in the African-American community around health issues and health concerns. Uh, you name it across the board, uh, whether it be diabetes or uh, whether it be heart disease, it was just mentioned. Uh, we have some significant challenges, and I'm as a pastor, I'm in the, in the heart of it, in the middle of it. I've done literally five funerals, four funerals, I'm sorry, in the last 
month and a half, less than that. Uh, and some of it's COVID related, some of it is, is, is cancer related and on and on and on. These are challenges in health disparities that are front and center uh, uh, as relates to African-American, African-American community, African-American leaders. We see it every single day. Um, and, and the challenges uh, are certainly connected to s- systemic racism. My, my mother in, in Jackson, Mississippi, stems back well between the, before the 1940s when she'd have to go to the dentist in the back door and um, they would pull her teeth instead of actually filling her teeth. Uh, what I'm saying here is uh, there is a number, there are a number of challenges that we have in the community and the church can play and has always played a very significant role in bringing about change. And, and this is it's no different as it relates to population health. We have a significant role. In fact, this is evidence-based. Um, we can, um, I think, with, with the right partnerships, uh, with the Department of Health, with uh, uh, hospitals, uh, and with our right, right resources, we can we can bring about uh, change in health concerns and health issues in African American African American community. This is evidence based, and I want to just um, say a couple of things about that. And I'm rushing here, um, and it is critical. Uh, as we think about the challenges that are facing the African-American community, uh, that we work together to bring about these changes. Uh, Over 50% of the social determinants of health are socioeconomic. And and we have been in the center of that, uh, attempting to bring about change and bring about uh, um, um, uh, the critical um, bringing together healthcare workers for for, uh, here at the church, we've been doing um, uh, diabetes prevention, um, uh, the, the menthol tobacco. 30 seconds. And, and so w- what I'm saying here is the evidence suggests that the trusted institutions like the church, specifically the church, who has been at front and center in the, the fight for social justice for since for, for decades. And so I, I want to just want to just say that the church is, is there to play a significant role uh, and, and to renew the trust See, the, the big challenge has been in the African-American community is that there has no, the, the trust has been uh, destroyed as it relates to time. Uh, trusting in, 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 in healthcare healthcare community. We can restore that trust is what I'm trying to get at. So thank you. Mm-hmm. And thank you for this opportunity. And thank you, uh, Reverend Miller. Appreciate hearing your voice today. OK, so we have uh, Tony Newborn and then Michelle Halfer, I mean, Kaufer. Maybe and please apologize. I apologize if I mispronounce anyone's name. I'm notorious for that. Don't take it personal. I don't mean to do it. So uh, please go ahead, Tony. Great. Um, and good afternoon, everyone. Uh, Tony Newborn, pronouns she, her, hers. I serve as the uh, chief equity officer for the city of St. Paul, and I'm here on behalf of uh, our mayor, Melvin McCarter. Um, and thank you so much for having me here. Um, we were asked to provide an update on the city's racial equity uh, work um, and it around um, since uh, you know the happening of, of COVID-19. Uh, so as you all may know, uh, the city has an equity framework which involves and includes our, our city departments in which each of our departments uh, strive towards a, a work plan and work goals to ensure that equity is viewed and uh, through, through every lens uh, that all of our work is viewed through an equity lens. 
And so we have that structure internally um, within the city. And that includes our engagement efforts and includes our policies, practices, and procedures and, and training. As it relates to some of the citywide initiatives that we've done that are a little bit more external focus, um, we've had, uh, and you all may be familiar with the work that the, that the mayor has led around um, our bridge fund, which was um, developed um, uh, shortly uh, in the spring of this year and shortly after COVID hit really uh, the, the city of St. Paul and we started to, uh, to work remotely and see the, the impact that was happening and uh, across our city. Um, as you all may know, uh, we had uh, uh, close to a little over 7,000 applications and um, a little over 1,200 families were awarded a grant. And uh, so this was the huge, uh, you know, uh, source of funding for our families and our businesses here and businesses of color and families of color uh, throughout the city of St. Paul. We also have recently launched um, a, a prosperity project, uh, which is uh, a guaranteed income pilot, which is led by the Office of um, Financial Empowerment. The People's Prosperity Pilot will provide up to 150 St. Paul families with $500 per month in guaranteed income for a period of up to uh, 18 months. So this um, project was launched not too long ago, less, uh, less than a month. We're really excited about that. And we, we know that this is going to be uh, of support for our families here in uh, the city of St. Paul. Um, as a result of COVID, um, we stood up and as a part of our racial equity framework, we stood up what we call the COVID-19 racial equity work group. And this group is comprised of uh, staff and community members in which um, we wanted to build a, a coalition of some sort around our public health needs. Uh, how do we organize around legislative advocacy, community engagement, um, as well as economic justice. And I'm uh, happy to report that we were able to um, uh, work with our community partners uh, and community clinics and healthcare providers such as MinCare and Open Cities, as well as Ramsey County in the state of Minnesota on standing up a uh, public health work group. And this group is focused on uh, access to testing, access to PPE, and also- That's time community cultural, um, community and cultural specific communication. So um, we've been working really closely with that group and are proud to move forward with um, working with our community as well. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Ms. Newborn. Um, for the testifiers who have testified and for those who are on who are not testifying, we have asked that you turn your cameras off uh, until it's your turn to speak. Thank you for that. Um, and uh, Ms. Kofa, Kofa, you can ask your name for it, Michelle. <laughs> and after uh, you will be Samir Bala uh, Roby. Thank you. Good afternoon, Madam Chair and members of the committee. My name is Michelle Kofa, and I'm the policy manager at Ed Allies, an advocacy organization that works to advance educational equity and remove barriers so all Minnesota students can receive a rigorous and engaging education. As this committee seeks to address issues of racial justice in our state, we see education as an area that needs laser focus. For, for years, Minnesota has had startling opportunity and achievement gaps, and now more than ever, the gaps and racial inequities in our state's education system needs to be addressed. Moving into the 2021 legislative session, we hope that this committee will use its influence to push policies that will benefit our students of color and, re and reform our inherently racist education system. 
To start, we must have a bold approach to recruiting and retaining teachers of color. Research shows that when students of color have teachers of color, they're more likely to be placed in gifted programs, graduate from high school on time, feel more cared for, and are less likely to be pushed out of schools through school through exclusionary discipline. To diversify the teacher workforce, this committee should support pre preserving pathways to tiered licensure and allowing school leaders to hire new teachers based on their effectiveness. This committee should also support investments in alternative teacher certification programs that recruit more diverse teachers. The committee must also support policies that dismantle the school to prison pipeline. We must put an end to unfair and sometimes violent disciplinary practices that disproportionately impact students of color and push them into the criminal justice system. Minnesota's history of disproportionately suspending and expelling students of color is extensively documented. Black students are eight times more likely to be suspended or expelled than their white peers, and Native American students are 10 times more likely, often for the same infractions. Lastly, but certainly not least, this committee must work to protect the self-determination of students, students and families of color. This committee must protect the rights of parents to choose the best schools for their students. Efforts to shut down charter schools that are working, to, working for students of color and Native, Native American students restrict the autonomy of families. Policymakers should stand up to defend what's working while ensuring all schools are held accountable to the families that they serve. Racial justice must begin in our schools. In order to create a society that is anti-racist and equity focused, we must begin with our education system, removing systemic, racist, removing systemic and racist barriers that stand in the way of students receiving a rigorous education. Thank you, Madam Chair and the committee. And thank you so much for being here today. So we have Samira and after Samira, we have Bernadia Johnson, Miss um, Roby. Thank you, representatives, for allowing me to speak before you today. My name is Samir Bilal Roby. I'm the director of the Wilder African American Babies Coalition and Projects and Integrated Care High Risk Pregnancy Initiative. I'm a third generation Minnesota, unable to recognize the Minnesota I was raised in. Yes, there was always prejudice and discrimination, but now that empathy is being drowned out. It feels like those that often were my allies are no longer significantly her to scale the energy needed for human rights. I believe it necessary to define awareness on what triggers inappropriate actions, such as racist behaviors through daily life and policies. It is imperative to examine this frequently. Disturbing messages in a lifetime of bigotry with no accountability decays uh, emotional intelligence and stops positive community influences. In the, in the United States, the caste system called racism, placing the Jim Crow system, which are brothers, is able to bear its beast. Characterization based through a caste system is to nullify cultural identity and executing human invisibility is detrimental for any forward moving society. Humbly, my expertise is to focus on the social development of children's self-worth so they are healthy during their endless educational growth. Don't we all want those youngsters to feel kindly, be fair, and share by playing with others? This parents and teachers say so they grow up to contribute as an adult respecting relations and become good leaders and neighbors that are just and fair-minded. Now, I will connect the parallel of adult continual development. We must continually examine our cultural lens many times over by progressing in our individual growth. 
Will you reject indignities that are designed to provide the lack of housing, medical care, and equitable ec uh, economics so our community can thrive comfortably? I would like today to draw some strategies for assessing this honestly and reflecting on those desirable qualities we demand of our youngsters. Will you, as our partner in government, help families by enacting legislation to institute the Family Leave Pay Act to allow fathers, especially single fathers, <clears throat> nurturing and caring for their babies in the early weeks of birth? Please stay mindful that all these children are Minnesota's future workforce. All mothers receive relevant- 30 seconds. To deliver healthy infants, particularly, particularly when there is crisis in the African-American community and indigenous community. Um, but I'm so sorry, I have asthma. Um, equal and balanced education and housing policies that um, close the economic and education disorders, address toxic syndrome, a stress uh, syndrome. I'm rushing through this. And so I want to go back to with the mothers that we need our doulas That's to time. take care. And Minnesotans should not fear any discussion on race and equity, but hold compassion as our guiding force towards justice. This is not un-American. The reality is race is man-made, fabricated system, addressing its effect, effects on the human spirit, promises truth to transformation. The outcry in the national community is without equity, there's no equality. Please invest in our people of color, indigenous to marginalized communities. Thanks again to the uptake and all of their sponsors for that audio. That's it for now. We'll see you next week for our next episode as we continue to explore social movements and community organizing across the Twin Cities. For now, thank you for listening to the Radical News Radio Hour. You can reach us at radicalnewsradiohour at gmail.com. You can find us at journalismofcolor.com. And you can listen to all episodes of this show on Spotify, Google Podcast. Pocket Cast, and several other podcast platforms. Thanks to Manny Mestas for this episode's opening and closing theme music. And for now, you're listening to WFNU, LP, St. Paul, Frogtown, Community Radio, 94.1 FM.